Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, a podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, journalists, academics and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and ecological crises we face today and reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. On today's show is journalist and author Paul Greenberg. Paul joined me to discuss, well, initially he joined me to discuss fish, uh, but we ended up talking about everything from nuclear fusion to climate obesity, i.e. which countries are guilty of consuming more energy than others, the Protestant Reformation as a template for the kind of radical change that our society requires, and then eventually back to fish. Paul has written some fantastic books on the climate crisis and is very well known for his work on the oceans, fish life, and on the kind of seafood diets that could sustainably support both the industry and our protein needs. He also recently wrote a book called The Climate Diet, 50 steps that individuals can take to reduce their energy consumption and to mitigate their effect on the planet. It was so much fun speaking with Paul. I really think that you're going to enjoy this. We cover a variety of topics as journalists tend to when they're together. And what we circle around frequently is the question of responsibility. Whose job is it to make the most radical change? and how we can take the most effective decisions as quickly as possible. Paul, I'm really thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you for joining me. No, my pleasure, Rachel. You've written books, you write for the New York Times, you're an expert in fish, which is not something you often get to say about somebody. (laughs) I often say that I'm not famous, but I'm fish famous. I'm sure if fish could talk, they would thank you for drawing so much attention to their crisis. Let's let's get into it a little bit. Why, Why fish? Well, so I grew up um, with as a divorced kid or rather a a child of divorced uh, parents Um, very early on. My parents split and my father wasn't was very much of a kind of he's almost like a stereotype of like a Woody Allen Upper West Side New York City psychiatrist. And didn't know the first thing really. Um, I don't know how it is in the UK, but, you know, back in the 70s, most fathers didn't know much about fathering. Um, Mm -hmm. or at least, you know, full-time father. So I think when um, my parents divorced, my father had it in his mind that a father should take his son fishing. Not that he he knew how to fish. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But, but, you know, kids go where you point them to some degree. And um, some people, you know, and this relates to the larger question of sort of the human relationship to the planet. But I've always had this theory that about 10% of the population um, has the hunter-gatherer gene still alive in them. And, you know, there are various theories about how Western civilization arose. And one theory is that the Indo-Europeans swept over uh, Neolithic Europe and pushed the original hunter-gatherers to the far corner. One argument is that the, the Basque language is actually so different from the rest of the European languages because it's an original fossil. It's a hunter-gatherer mm. language that precedes all their languages. Um, so there was, of course, interbreeding between the Indo-Europeans and the resident hunter-gatherers. My pet theory is that there's 10% of the gene pool is hunter-gatherer, and that gene surfaces periodically. I know it's a <laughs> lot of genetic determinism. And you'll find people that just... I, I always find when I teach kids how to fish, they there are some kids who are just totally lock and load on it and are totally into it. And there are other kids, my own son included, that just have no interest in it whatsoever. Mm. And so um, for me, I was one of those lock and load kids. And that was how I came to really love the natural world was not just sort of looking at it through binoculars, but by participating as a predator, if you will. And, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean there is that irony in what you're saying. I came to love the natural world yes, by, you know, fishing. But- yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, and I think, you know, to some degree, um, have you seen the film Sea Spiracy? I, I got about a quarter of the way through it. And then... <laughs> I watched it yeah. on I watched it on one and a half times speed. 
and it was fine. Uh, but, you know, that film, I think, regardless of what you or I might have invested in terms of viewing time, um, it was very well watched. I mean, it mm-hmm. was of all the fishy stuff that I've seen come out in the number last few years. But, you know, the message that you walk away from that film with is don't eat fish and mm-hmm. don't don't um, you know, basically be a vegan, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there's a kind of sort of um, passive spec- spectator-like quality, I feel, to the kind of modern urban vegan who doesn't want to touch anything to do with actual physical nature and just sort of has likes scrolling through their Instagram and looking at beautiful pictures of nature, but is not necessarily mm. actively participating in the drama that is life. So I certainly take the killing of anything seriously. And I certainly reformed the way I fish in my lifetime, especially in the last 10 years. Um, but I think to kind of just step back from the relationship with the natural world entirely and just make it a kind of a viewing uh, symposium perhaps misses something along the way. So, I mean, I wouldn't go to the wall to defend fishing. I certainly can see why if all of us were truly going to be vegans and we were truly, but at the same time, ready to kind of physically participate in the, in the natural world and defend it and do all those kinds of things, great. But my guess is that the majority of the people uh, who kind of step away from, I don't know, fishing or hunting or whatever, are really passive observers of nature rather than active participants. This is interesting because the other thing that you write about is like technological alienation, right? How, yeah. how people are, yeah, becoming more and more dissociated from the natural world. And, and, you know, it's true. I read an article that you wrote about, you know, concrete and steel and phones as well. So I'm glad that you've kind of brought this up because I was most interested actually in the intersection of all of your interests. Yeah. Um, and certainly I think, you know, what we have seen with uh, veganism is like, a really brilliant uh, impetus and desire to change and a willingness as well, because veganism is hard. I mean, it demands a certain financial status, but it demands time and energy and research. So, you know, hats off to people that are willing to make changes. Yeah. Um, but what we've seen instead is, you know, people go, OK, well, it's animal agriculture that's a problem, so I'll stop with that. But then deforestation in Brazil increases because almond milk and soy milk and all these things. So it doesn't really attack the problem of like industrialization and globalization and inequity in supply chains yeah. um, and consumption, essentially. And one of the things I was really fascinated by Attenborough's documentary last year, the one about, you know, climate change, even though it wasn't quite titled that, um, was the one thing that he said, if we free up more of the coastline for wildlife and designate certain fishing areas and keep them quite small and then distribute fish a little bit more fairly and you know reduce food waste then we can actually eat fish sustainably and that's the one uh form of animal that we can continue with and i find that really really interesting and surprising you know so i haven't seen the Edinburgh documentary but i will say that you know in my book the climate diet i do point out that when you um and and keep in mind that life cycle analyses um of different foodstuffs are always tricky. But I mm-hmm. I think I did my due diligence and I talked to a number of people who look at the carbon footprint of fish. And when you're talking about wild fish, the carbon footprint is actually quite low. Mm. Um, why? Well, a wild creature, first of all, doesn't require human husbandry to bring it to market. So, you know, all of that stuff like feeding and tending and so forth, that's just happens through natural processes. The only thing that is expensive from a carbon perspective with fish is the is is the fishing method and there are different fish that cost us different amounts of carbon depending on how carbon intensive the harvesting method is like dragging the bottom of the seafloor for Mm. place or sole is going to be carbon intensive however a midwater trawl where the net doesn't actually touch the bottom for something say like herring or mackerel is extremely carbon efficient and so in that sense i i do agree with attenborough um i think that ocean systems can be tremendously, tremendously productive. We um, are often um, trying to superimpose a, a terrestrial model on the sea and try to make it seem as if they're somehow comparable. 
the um, one thing I will always point out is that up until recently, there was basically no construction in the ocean. We weren't physically occupying ocean mm. spaces. So there's no competition for habitat like we have on land. There's no subdivisions going into the ocean. So in that sense, yes, there's the potential to have, you know, a still largely wild ocean. Um, at the same time, there are all sorts of competing interests, including from the renewable energy sector that are competing for ocean space. Like I'm mm -hmm. just working on a story right now about the competition uh, between Maine lobstermen, um, Maine uh, being in the northern part of the United States, um, and wind farms that are about to go in big time. Um, and you must know about oh, wow. the wind farm situation up, up in your part of the world. I think I, I know just about the same as a layman um, mm -hmm. on wind farms. I, I know that they're not quite as efficient as one would hope for. Yeah. Um, and the amount of materials that it takes to create one is really quite distressing. It is. And, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I spoke to, so the story that I'm working on right now, um, they, they're putting in a test array off of the Gulf of Maine. And unlike in the UK, like the UK already has substantial wind farm in operation off of the Southeast um, and also off of Scotland where you're from. Mm. Um, and increasingly those are getting larger and larger. Um, I always, you know, as an environmentalist, always figured that renewables at all costs, that's what we need. But what was interesting, once you start to delve into it, is that, you know, as you point out, the materials are expensive to obtain and to build. Um, the servicing of these, um, of the windmills is required. <laughs> I was talking to a UK fisherman about this, and I was saying, you know, has, has anything good come out of wind farms for you? And he said, well, we do actually sell quite a bit of petrol to the wind farm operators to go back and forth to the yeah. wind yeah, farms. Yeah, um, and then there's other interesting things. I mean, and again, I don't want to say that I'm not anti-wind farm because again, you know, where is this power going to come from? Um, but um, there are interesting, there hasn't been a lot of science put into the before and after effects of putting in a large amount of structure into the ocean. Because keep in mind, mm. it's not just the wind turn, it's just not, not just the blades turning, but there's a huge amount of power lines, um, all sorts of infrastructure that have to go along the sea floor to conduct all that electricity back to shore. Mm -hmm. um, what the impact of that is from electromagnetic vibration to all these kinds of things, we still don't quite know. Have there been um, any studies done? Yeah, yeah. What are the results? There haven't been a whole lot of studies. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the the I think the best that I can tell, and I'm still in the middle of the story, so I can't mm -hmm. quite give you a firm answer on that. But what was interesting was talking with the wind developer in the Gulf of Maine, um, who seems like a pretty straightforward environmental kind of guy. He was like, I was, I was like, am I right that there really hasn't been a lot of before or after studies in Europe? And this is a guy who has a vested interest in developing wind farms. He's like, you're right. There really hasn't been a lot of before and after. Uh, you know, and the thing is, there's a lot of money there, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of big European and Asian companies that stand to make quite a bit of money. So there's not a whole lot of interest in doing deep studies. And and now mm. that, you know, it's particularly in Europe, now that governments are invested, you know, they've made, put, made commitments, they've said they're going to achieve carbon neutrality by a certain date. The biggest form of putting on the balance sheet of getting to carbon zero but to net zero, it is going to be offshore wind by and large, unless something else comes along like nuclear fusion, like, um, uh, you know, perhaps tidal energy, things like that. But for the moment, the thing that the technology that exists that can produce the most megawatts is going to be offshore wind. I'm really lucky. I do get sort of climate scientists um, on the show quite frequently. Yeah. And they're like, okay, first of all, net zero pipe dream. Mm -hmm. Wrong goal. <laughs> Second of all, the reason that we use fossil fuel is it's because it is the most efficient fuel on the planet that we mm -hmm. have found so far. Right. Wind, solar, you know, tidal, it just doesn't compare. We yep. cannot generate enough energy using these renewable tools. Yep. So what we need to start doing is focusing on reducing our consumption, but nobody has a vested interest in that. That's right. That, you're talking about reducing profit margins. Right, right. Well, you know, I remember a number of years ago, now it must be over 20 years now, I read an article in the magazine Harper's, and um, it was a very early climate change article. And I remember the author saying, 
couldn't we just throw all of our money at Exxon and Shell and BP and just say, please take all our money, but just convert everything to renewables? You know, mm. we understand that you have the total power monopoly on everything. Mm. Fine. You can have all our money, but just change. Yeah. Um, I thought that was sort of an interesting argument at the time. Obviously, it didn't happen, but <laughs> it, it does make you want to sort of say that. And and to to be fair, I mean, or to be to talk to that, there is, you know, I think some talk about some of these companies that are already doing offshore oil drilling switching over to offshore wind because when you think about it, there's already an experience working offshore like that. So who knows? Shell's got this whole like sustainability department. Yeah. And um, they're they're working on uh, nature-based solutions. That's what they call it. So the acronym is NBS. And if you watch any of their like promo videos or even in-house meetings, all yeah, you know this NBS and that NBS and whatever. And and it's just wild because like they refer to uh, forests as assets. You know, mm -hmm. like carbon assets. And the the way that they talk about the the uh, natural world, the the way that they're financializing climate change. Uh, and also in no way taking responsibility for their part in arriving where we are today. And I don't, I don't buy into the um, narrative of like, it's their fault, you know, where it, it, every relationship is mutual, yeah. you know, if consumers didn't demand so much, there wouldn't be so much supply. Yeah. Um, but just like, no, 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 we're going to, we're here. We're here to help. We're going to provide the solution. So just. Yeah. Stop being yeah. so fucking disingenuous. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. You know, at some point, blame has to be placed with somebody, and somebody has to be motivated to make the kind of massive change that has to happen. Mm. And I think what we've seen in the recent COP26 thing that we we can't quite figure out where the locus of blame is or where yeah. where is the leverage of change, you know what I mean? And I've, mm -hmm. you know, spent the previous year writing this whole book about shrinking your own personal carbon footprint. And of course, a lot of people will point to the whole notion of a carbon footprint as being something that came out of the fossil fuel industry yeah. of, of that, you know, somehow it's all on the individual in order to change things. But at the same time, we are just individuals. We are just individual human beings. And to have no responsibility on a personal basis also seems to be wrong. So mm -hmm. just trying to figure out what is the locus of blame? What is the locus of responsibility? Mm -hmm. um, that to me is the big challenge for the next, if we've got it, 10 years to try and solve this problem. But this is the thing. I mean, we don't we don't have that long. We don't yeah. have long enough to find the locus of response. Like that's the situation that we've gotten into now. Yeah. Um, if we could just find that sweet spot of uh, presenting whatever the relationship exactly is between consumer and supplier and between individual versus network of individuals um, and maybe also stop like anthropomorphizing companies and you know all this sorts of stuff uh, but we don't have the time yeah so like what's it going to take is it going to take some radical politicians getting voted in is it going to take coups military yeah. coups and then also the other scary thing is if you imagine kind of um the people on the other side, you know, the activists who are rightly shouting about the the crisis that we're in, um, their solutions as well don't really provide a blueprint for saving the economy, um, and therefore saving lives. Right? Yeah. It's so complex the issue. I mean, we've got a little time, so we can we can we Let's could try to it. flesh out a few different things. <laughs> um, I number of years ago I reviewed a. Uh, uh, Bill McKibben's second book on climate was called Earth, E double A R T H. Um, the idea being E double A T R R T H was um, this planet that we now live in. We no longer live on Earth. We live in Earth. Um, <laughs> and in Earth, already this, the dynamics that uh, are the future of our climate are already irrevocably in place. And so that so much going forward will have to be a certain degree of ad adaptation. Um, at the same time, you know, he never yielded in the idea that we need to take really strong, positive action going forward. And I remember, so I read this book and um, and I had to review it for the New York Times. And, you know, it's M McKibben is a great, very good writer. Um, I don't know if you've read his work, um, The End of Nature. I mean, he's 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 a big over here in the States anyway. He's a big activist. He's sort of the most recognizable name of climate activists in the United States. 
And um, at the end of the book, he did this thing that, you know, we, all of us nonfiction writers are, end up getting asked to do by the publisher. Um, the publisher inevitably reads your depressing account, mm. 80,000 word account and says, well, can't you throw in some solutions? Mm. Can't you throw the reader a bone? And what McKibben did at the end of Earth was, you know, suggesting, of, you know, oh, we could, you know, decentralize agriculture. We could, you know, there was just this list, this list of things that to me um, were very familiar. I'm sure they'd be very familiar to you. But at the end of the review that I wrote, I said, it's almost as if we need an environmental Lenin, you know, somebody like Vladimir Ilyich Lenin to make this thing happen, a cruel, uh, hapless not cruel, not hapless, a cruel, but just driven, relentless yeah. spokesperson for the earth. And, um, you know, is that, a, is that the form of a revolution? I don't know. Um, the, the question is, you know, I think the reason Lenin was able to succeed was that he had the wind of hunger at his back, you know, and the possibility of deliverance from hunger and suffering. Um, could a potentate take power with the wind of climate and climate change at their back, I'm not sure. Would we want such a person in charge? I'm not sure. But as you say, it could be one of those things that gets on the table. The the, the thing, though, that did, have you had anyone on the show talking about nuclear fusion? No, not yet. But actually, I just have a quick question. Yeah, sure. We'll go uh, back before to we get into that, yeah. we, will, we will go back into nuclear fusion. But um, what did your book look like before your publisher told you to put in some happy things? Hmm. Well, you know, it was a slightly different thing because McKibben's book is uh, kind of more ambitious. It was a longer nonfiction narrative where he kind of took a whole accounting of everything that had taken place to date. Um, my book, um, The Climate Diet, really um, was, it kind of emerged in a way already as that list of the end of the book that right. the publisher wanted to do. And it really came out of, I, I did a, a, a not bad for the New York Times called the New Year's Climate Diet. And it was just sort of looking at the fact that, you know, the United States of all the industrial countries is the most sort of, on an individual basis, the most climate obese in the sense mm -hmm. that um, we're both a very big country, but also if you look at the total amount of emissions divided by the number of people that we have in the States, each person in the United States you know, theoretically bears a much larger per capita burden of what we're doing to the planet. I think it's 16 times, isn't yeah. it? Um, well, it's like, uh, it's it's 16 times per person per year, yeah. between 15 and 16 times. Mm. And if you look at China, which, you know, is often um, pointed at today as the largest overall gross carbon emitter as a country, again, on a per capita basis, it's actually half of what it is in the United States. Yeah. Um, and... European countries, I think UKs are on what was it five or six or something like that. It's uh, huge. Yeah, it's not as much as the USA, but UK, Europe, and USA absolutely take the biscuit and then turn yeah. around and dictate to these other countries. That's right. Yeah, and if you look at India, it's like one point five or uh, one point seven. What yeah. I do think is interesting, um, I, and I, this comes up in the climate diet, is that France is remarkably low. And really? um, yeah, they're around three point one, three point two, and they're you know the 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 UN has tended to look at around three tons per person per year as something that would bring us below that two degrees Celsius threshold. Um, the reason France has done that, and this will tie us back, is is nuclear. Yeah. And, you know, France went very big on nuclear very early on. They've continued to be big on nuclear. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I think that we are faced with uh, either... Uh, acute risk or chronic destruction um, when it comes to nuclear. Um, mm. I think that, you know, we were all scared out of our pants by Fukushima. Um, previous to that, you're much younger than I, but um, the Three Mile Island disaster um, in, in uh, the States and then Chernobyl in the 80s, all those things combined to make the public deeply suspicious of nuclear energy. But when you think about what is potentially scalable quick enough in order to deal with the climate crisis, unfortunately, or fortunately, or whatever you want to say, it is it is atomic, it is nuclear. Yeah. Um, which is why the thought of nuclear fusion, which is opposed to fission, which is you know the 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 technology we have now is fission, but fusion 
poses to have way more potential power. And that could be the real game changer. Um, to me, the more I think about it, the more I think that if you look at, say, the state, the U.S. the U.S. and the USSR in the late 60s in the space race, um, a very large portion of the GDP was put into getting people into space and onto the moon. Um, a similar kind of effort toward achieving nuclear fusion might be our only best chance as a species to get to the point. Because if we could achieve nuclear fusion, then all these questions and conversations that we, we're having would just become academic. Well, I'm not sure if I completely agree with that, because ultimately it would, it would just give us more time. So these things, it would give us time to be academics again when facing the issue <laughs> <laughs> to then implement this, you know, different solutions. And I think that this is kind of the long termism versus short termism. Like, you know, we do need something now. But yeah. the thing that we ha can ha use now doesn't have to be the thing that we use forever. Right. And surely it wouldn't be ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny. Um, going back to the wind farm question, this was something that came up a lot when I was talking with fishermen who were about to be displaced by these wind farms. I always thought that you'd put the wind farm in and you'd be done. But, you know, the wind farms only last 20 years. Mm. Um, and then they get decommissioned and then you have to redo the whole thing. Um, yeah. So talk about a solution that maybe is not, is kind of short term and we need something longer term. I guess what I'm saying when I talk about nuclear fusion, I'm just saying that in terms of if we're really serious about really trying to address this, then a certain um, major portion of um, the West or of the developed world's budget really should be put towards the development of this technology. Because yeah. um, here I do disagree. I'm not sure if we're, we're in agreement or we're in disagreement, but all the numbers that I've looked at in terms of nuclear fusion tell me that that could be the the fix. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you just have to look at the average uh, with France using 3.1 tons per person. Yeah. And what I find particularly interesting about it, and I think that this could be spun as a PR move to make everybody excited about nuclear again. You know, in France, they drive cars, they still use, you know, their, their petrol to get from A to B. Um, yeah. They still use polyester. They still use plastics. They still have the way of life that everybody is really reticent to give up. Yeah. Um, but because they use nuclear to kind of fuel the country rather than the individuals, mm -hmm. they can afford that. They can mm. afford, you know, the net thing, even though I don't buy it at all. It does sort of balance out temporarily at least. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's been no issues in France for ever with nuclear yeah i don't i i mean i i haven't done a deep dive on it but i don't know there's no chernobyl of france as no. so far as i know no 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 there isn't i lived in france for five years and nuclear was never really like a, a conversation or should of should we shouldn't be and it was never a moral thing it was just yeah. it, it was being used and you know if it was that versus fossils then they were kind of happy to be the people trialing it quite frankly yeah well i mean france gave us the meter <laughs> you know, um, and and you know, and so many of the sort of I think the technocracy of the modern world we owe a lot to France, and mm. um, uh, and they are often quick to develop. I always remember my favorite one of my favorite French inventions. I remember in was it like maybe nineteen ninety one, ninety two? I went to France and I was um, speaking with my friend Carole and. Um, I was like, well, what movie shall we see? And she said, oh, we just, we look it up on the Minitel. I'm like, what's, what's, qu'est-ce que c'est le Minitel? Oh, <laughs> le Minitel. And it was like this little tiny computer that was, <laughs> it was the internet. It was the web in 1991. Um, and you could go on the Minitel and you look it up and it's very nice. It connects. It's, and it, they had the whole thing already worked out. And it was really strange. And, and of course, you know, American technology zoomed ahead and replaced it. But I remember my, so my brother is a screenwriter in Hollywood and we worked on a sci-fi TV show for a little while. And we had one episode of the show that, that the producers killed, but I always thought it was funny. It was going to be sort of like um, the hero, vis-a-vis uh, the matrix, he like jacks into the net because there's this artificial intelligence that is wreaking havoc all over the world and they mm -hmm. don't know what so finally he goes into the into the net and he meets the artificial intelligence it turns out the artificial intelligence was spawned from the minitel 
And it's this arrogant, angry French <laughs> artificial intelligence that's embedded <laughs> in the web. And it's, it's, feel this, it's got this huge chip on its shoulder, and that's why it's messing up everything. And the way that the hero eventually disables it is he starts asking it lots of questions about how do you get from A to B on the Paris metro? It's, oh, is it easy? You're going to Ariel and you switch it. But uh, needless to say, the producer killed that. In a, in a later day, maybe they would have allowed that to get through. But anyway, back, we digress. Back to, back to, you know, to France and technocracy and, um, and nuclear energy. I just do think that we need to take a look at it. And um, I mean, I was the first, you know, would have been with everyone else, um, you know, and with Jane Fonda and the China Syndrome. Again, these are movies that precede you by numbers of years. But I would embrace those. I mean, I would, I would, it's worth a rethink and a relook at all of these kinds of things. Um, I think the te- the nuclear technology that has failed us, we have to keep in mind, was developed in almost space race, space race speed. Mm. You know, the Soviet Union trying to get things up to speed as quickly as possible. Industrializing Japan, trying to go from a rural society to a technocracy really, really quickly. Um, none of this was done at a measured pace. But I do think that now, if we could consider a more measured pace about doing it with safety protocols and so forth in place, it's worth not being knee-jerk about it, you know? Definitely. It's about reframing the the problem, isn't it? You know, yeah. we can either uh, do that... Uh, and maybe yes, have some some acute risk, but also bearing in mind the 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 nation that is ma- has been managing nuclear for decades has had no issues. Yeah. Um. Versus, you know, if we continue the way that we are, Jakarta is going to be underwater right. in ten years, and then that's uh, hundreds of millions dead. That's right. That's right. And it's not even utilitarian. It's just like sh- sure, surely there's a couple of only a couple of ways that we can go now because we've sort of backed ourselves into a corner. Yep. I mean, and this brings us back to the question of who's going to rule this this transition, who's going to run it. And sometimes I think, you know, in a way, uh, I mean, as, as you pointed out in my biography, you know, I'm, I have a lot of resistance to technology and to the techn technologification of day-to-day life. And I, mm-hmm. you know, have quit my iPhone. I wrote a book called Goodbye Phone, Hello World. And I do believe in the direct darshan, the eye-to-eye contact with nature is really revitalizing from a spiritual point of view. But when it comes to all of these like technocratic decisions that have to be made to get us to a, a, a carbon good place, mm. this is almost, I feel like, needs to be run by an AI. You know what I mean? Like these decisions about which technologies we should pursue, it's a little bit like the self-driving car, you know, that people mm. worry about it, that it will kill the driver yeah. because it'll do a calculation to figure out the maximum number of people who would survive in a crash situation. In a way, human reasoning and human logic doesn't seem up to the task of the global energy transformation. And yet. And yet. And yet. (laughs) We have uh, options. And we have people who are intelligent enough who are working right now. I I interviewed Nate Higgins and he was talking about the difference between specialists and generalists. Mm-hmm. And how essentially we um, have a whole world of specialists, which is fantastic. But now we need generalists to to pin between them and kind of you know pull things together and say this is this is an interlocking system of things that we can move forward with. Because right now it's like oh well if if X then Y you know okay yeah nuclear but people might die. So it seems that we have solutions, but I I would argue that the problems we face in terms of implementing these solutions, it's not human logic, it's it's greed, it's mm-hmm. lobbying powers, it's vested interests, it's uh, the world being a certain way and changing it would, you know, destabilize power. I have somebody I speak with about this kind of stuff who frequently says, the powers that be don't want the world to change because this is how they're going to bring back the aristocracy. Oh, could be. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, one thing that's been on my mind lately, so my son, I have a 15-year-old who's studying, um, who's doing what we call advanced placement European history. It's a way of basically placing out of having to do a course in college. You do it in high school. Wow, 15? Well, it's just, it's pretty common. You know, keep in mind, this is national. So, you know, it's for the average person to place out of European history at the average university. So like at Harvard, you know, inshallah, he where he will go, uh, uh, I jest, but he would probably still have to take European history. But, right. you know, if he was going to go to Podunk State, he would have to take um, 
anyway, the point that the reason I'm doing this is that I'm finding my I am I am the history tutor of record. My partner is the math tutor of record. I'm the history tutor of record, <laughs> and um, we're really stuck and we're mired deep in the uh, Protestant Reformation right now. Okay, and um, I never like you must have remember going through this in school and you know it's a slog and like oh what does this have to do with me and da, 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 da. but it suddenly occurred to me i was actually reading a draft book by my friend carl safina who's a really great ecologist um and i was saying to carl yesterday actually that what we really need is the, the equivalent of martin luther's 95 thesis like do you remember that from your history classes where martin luther really at risk to his own life nailed it on the door of the church, mm. these 95 reasons why the Catholic, basically why the Catholic church sucked um, <laughs> and why it needed to change. And then following that was over a hundred years of war and strife on the continent to try and we, and in the UK to try and work this whole thing out. That when you talk about an ingrained institution that has no investment in change, ain't nothing better than the Catholic church for that. Because when you think about it, this is an institution that owned and controlled lands all over Europe mm -hmm. um, that had a fixed income, basically built on serfdom and tithes and all these kinds of things. And here was this guy coming along who's just a lowly preacher who said, no, this is totally wrong. And this is totally against the nature of God. In this case, what we need is the 95 thesis nailed on the on. I don't know, the wall of, you know, on the message boards of all of the bulletin boards of all of the internet places in the world, all the sites in the world, saying that the way that we've organized society today is intensely and intrinsically out of sync with peace, love, understanding, happiness, sustainability, and everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, 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 it's a revolutionary statement that has to be made, and it has to in some way it has to it has to hit at the heart of things you know and and it has to cause wide-scale disruption you know the closest person i can think of who's doing that is greta thunberg but mm. you know is she being taken seriously is uh is it is she just some sort of plaything of the international ngo community i don't know yeah yeah i mean question a society that would, you know, push a child to become their frontman rather than taking the heat themselves. Yeah. Um, I think what's really interesting in everything you've just said is that we never hear talk of how, apart from in the most radical of activists who funnily enough are, an, are often ignored, but how a post-carbon world could be a better world. Mm -hmm. It could be more equitable. It could be more sustainable. Um, it could be more natural. People could work less uh, if consumption wasn't the driving factor in everything that we do and, and capitalism as well. Um, and I think that that is where we need to push. It needs to become a dream because that was the thing. He nailed that on the door and that was essentially saying uh, this is wrong in the, you know, the eyes of God. This is not what God imagines. It's really ideological. It's really powerful. People can get behind that. Um, there's not really an ideology for people to get behind right now. It's more like, oh, the world's on fire, but I don't want to give up my way of life. And it's not even so as conscious as um, I feel like I shouldn't have to. I mean, how how are you meant to change your life? How are you meant? What are you meant to give up exactly? And and what would that look like? So giving people the dream of um, like a post carbon vision mm -hmm. that that could be what changes policy. Maybe, yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, in a weird way, you know, COVID um, mm. get, you know, opened the door slightly. I mean, I don't know if it's happening in the UK, but there's a mass amount of office work. Many people are just quitting their jobs. Yeah, and I I've think, you know, and I think that's somewhat indicative of feeling like this whole system that we've set up for ourselves is not really driving happiness at all. There's a very good book. Well, there's a very good bad book that I often think about called Ecotopia. Okay. And, um, it was written in the 70s, and the idea is that um, Northern California, Oregon, and Washington, Washington State, secede from the United States, and they create <clears throat> this uh, this this ideal state called Ecotopia. And it's all told a kind of it's kind of a Gulliver's Travels um, story where a, a reporter from New York gets the first Ecotopian visa, and he's he's sent on a reporting assignment. 
to see how the Ecotopians live. And the Ecotopians live, as you say, they're very, you know, they live a really great life. They're like, you know, it brings brings a little tear to my eye, I have to say, when I talk about it. But, you know, there's a lot of, a lot more placed on the communal, a lot more placed on the, on, on the relaxing side of, of life. And, you know, it, but as you say too, and as your guest who comes on your show says, you know, there is this, um, desire to go backwards and return to aristocracy, which, you know, if you want to go one sphere out bigger than that is really a lot about humans as hierarchical animals, you know, that were built in our DNA and in our social structures that evolved over hundreds of, or over a million, over, over hundreds of thousands of years as hominids, let's say, um, that, that, that we have this biology driving us to, towards status um, towards showing that we're better than other like creatures. And so mm. that's a pretty hard thing to fight against, but it's it's certainly important. Unfortunately, I haven't read it yet. Otherwise, I'm sure I'd be able to come back with some data. But right over there is um, the the Dawn of Everything or A New Dawn of Everything uh-huh. by, by David Graeber and David Bunro. Yep. Uh, and from what I understand so far from the this few pages I've read, they're essentially challenging that hierarchical theory. They've, you know, to prove that there is um, humanity is a collaborative species at its core, mm. not competitive. Otherwise, we would have never gotten to the place that we are today. And I spoke to an um, a biophysical economist who said the exact same thing. We weren't talking about the book, but he was saying that if... Um, you know, even on the level of like our gut biome, mm-hmm. we are in um, relationships with all of these little creatures that are not us, but uh, are independent to us physically. But without them, we would die. Yep. We're, we're an ecosystem within an ecosystem within an ecosystem. Da, da, da. And he said, it just proves that um, nature is collaborative. And also we are collaborative on a biological level, on a you know psychological level. Da, 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 da. And he was arguing, you know, if we could just change the narrative, could mm-hmm. we change the policy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as journalists, that's sort of where where we land in all of this, like what we can do, because, I mean, I'm sure you believe in the power of storytelling. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, I, I mentioned Carl Sabina earlier. Um, so I'm a fellow with this institute, and he often says that it's not really, it's not data that changes minds. It is it is stories. It's um, things that speak to the heart. Mm. And um so yeah, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I if I thought that um, stories weren't powerful. We should go back to fish. I feel. <laughs> well, <laughs> just yeah, I sure. mean, we've got we've got what about ten ten ish minutes? Sure. And we this started with you know I introduced you to a fish expert, and then we just stopped talking about <laughs> them. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think writers are always forever trying to I think do something else than their then they then they feel they're stuck doing. Um, David David Mamet, uh, play, American playwright, once famous. Well, I don't know if he famously said, but I read a book. I was writing something about Vermont, and he had there was a series of books assigned on the American states, and he was got assigned Vermont. And he said the writer, having received a commission to write a book about Vermont, finds himself thinking of Ohio. You know. <laughs> So I I always feel with fish, you know, I I keep trying to move off that subject, but I keep kind of getting brought back in. But, you know, going back to trying to maybe to merge the fish and the climate question, Mm. um, I do think that fish and the ocean and what people are calling the blue economy are a really potentially Mm. great way to address some of our issues around food production Mm -hmm. um, for the future. Um, So a lot of potential in things like um, seaweed, kelp. Um, mussels, clams, oysters, all of those creatures are very low um, in carbon uh, carbon emissions to get to the to the table. But they also do like great things biologically. Um, you know, um, uh, mussels, clams, oysters, seaweed, they all create structure that creates more habitat, more edge, potentially enriching biodiversity on the planet. Um, you know, the, the uh, terrestrial agriculture um, overloads the ocean uh, with nitrates. And it's precisely things like seaweeds um, and mussels and so forth that can remove those nitrates from the water column um, and put them to good use. So I think rethinking how we, you know, a lot of people are sort of anti-aquaculture. I'm not one of those people. I think that it's really which species we choose to make the focus of our aquaculture in the future 
could be, you know, could be a game changer. And then I also think, you know, rebuilding, if we were to rebuild um, wild species um, past back to their um, pre-exploitation levels, then the general consensus among fishery scientists is that we could have another 20 to 30 million metric tons of seafood, wild seafood per, per, per year. So that, mm. so there's a lot of potential there um, that I don't think we're necessarily realizing quite. And is it possible? Because I think when um, most of us think of the oceans and the problems in the ocean, it's like, you know, the, the temperatures rising mm-hmm. and the, the corals bleaching mm-hmm. and without the corals, certainly the message that I've gotten um, in documentaries and articles it's like you know sort of game over are we close to game over in the ocean? no i mean you know the thing is the oceans still produce 80 to 90 million metric tons of seafood per year and or loads fish and shellfish per year um and when you think about it, that's that's the human weight of china um produced every single year so i'm going to pick Sorry. up this photo and then i'm going to actually I'm just going to this. um uh but we we get a tremendous amount of stuff from the sea in spite of everyone saying that the oceans are dead. So there's like a tremendous, mm. tremendous amount of vitality still left in the ocean. Um, yes, coral bleaching is a thing, but if we were to lose all the coral reefs in all the world, that would primarily affect the tropics. I mean, there's still substantial productivity in the temperate zones um, where coral is not even really part of the ecosystem. So it's very hard to make a very broad generalization about all the oceans because all the oceans represent so many different mm. ecosystems overall. Um, the bigger concern is ocean acidification, which that when you start to talk about undermining the very base levels of all marine systems, like on a planktonic level, and um, many plankton form calciferous shells. So if we lose plankton, yes, that is a game over situation. But I don't think we're there yet. And I think that, um, you know, again, it's whether the oceans, there goes us. And uh, it's one more reason to really address the carbon issue very seriously because ocean acidification is a direct result of excess carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Okay, so for the people listening, if there's um, a fish that, if there's fish that they should be avoiding and fish that they should be eating, <laughs> what is it? Oh boy. Well, um, <laughs> in terms of eating, um, I'm always an advocate for things like anchovies and sardines. Um, the vast majority of these small, what are called forage fish, get caught and ground up and fed to salmon or pick or chickens or pigs. Um, the biggest fishery in the world is the Peruvian anchoveta. Um, sometimes as much as five or ten million metric tons of fish per per year. Those fish, ninety nine percent of them, go to livestock feed. So eating those directly, mm-hmm. if possible, to me is a thing that we should be doing more of. And I mentioned all. Already, mussels, clams, oysters, and seaweeds are all good good choices. In terms of things that can be avoided or should be avoided, um, I think bottom trawled species um, like sole or or flounder not ideal. I mean, there are ways of catching those in pots. So if there's an option to catch to eat pot caught fish like that, that is probably a good thing to do. And bottom trawls when they drag the the when net across the they're seabed. literally dragging the bottom and disrupting the benthos as they right. go. So I think that's a practice that we need to figure out a way around um, going forward. There are some bottom ecosystems that can maintain that better than others, like a sandy bottom that trawling sounds like a bad day at the beach, but <laughs> um, but um, or a good day, <laughs> or a good day. Um, but um, but you know, avoiding avoiding bottom trawl species is probably a good idea. Sadly, I would say it's probably time to avoid anything caught in the Mediterranean. Um, because uh, there's something like more than 20 different countries surround the Mediterranean, and it's very hard to reach fishing accords among those different nations. I have an article in French um, in the magazine Geo that's coming out this month um, where we look, part of it is about the Mediterranean. But it's more like, um, it's not necess- It's not always a question coming down to species. It comes down to which nations and which bioregions have the rule of law in place and decent management in place. And, you know, not to toot my country's own horn, but the United States historically has been a good manager of its fisheries. Australia, quite good. New Zealand, quite good. Um, the UK suffers from ongoing disputes with its neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So that, it, you know, is a very complicated nutshell in which I could summarize things. So there are certain creatures that you can always eat, like anchovies, mussels, clams, and oysters. And then um, there are certain bioregions that we have to avoid, like the Mediterranean. All right. And I just, I have to ask because they're really popular and I need to know for myself. Yeah. Salmon and tuna. Um, so again, you're speaking of um, a, a basket of species when you mention those names. Um, mm -hmm. And in fact, it's, you know, when I wrote my book, Four Fish, salmon and tuna are two of the fish, but they yeah. actually are fishes. There are 23 different species out there that fall under the rubric of tuna. Right. And there are at least six species that fall under the rubric of salmon. Um, I, I, I tend to, if you're going to have tuna um, in a can, um, I tend to favor chunk light, which tends to be skipjack tuna and pole caught if you can get it. Um, when it comes to salmon, um, you know, there are some very interesting and good farmers of salmon out there. But uh, because I live in the States and because we have very healthy populations of wild sockeye salmon, I always emphasize people to try to get wild salmon on their plate. I think actually in the UK, the majority of the tinned salmon that you're getting over there is going to be wild salmon from Alaska, sometimes from Russia okay. as well. But tinned sockeye, also called red salmon, is probably your best choice when it comes to salmon. Sometimes frozen portions as well, but I don't know what the fish market scene is in the UK. At the All right. Well, some good news there. Yeah. Um, you know, hope, lots of hope, uh, nuclear fusion and, um, you know, fish. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not in the same kettle. <laughs> so I should call the episode Nuclear Fusion and Fish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, I, you know, we've gone to places in this interview that I don't necessarily have go to in the writing that I've done so far, but it's not the last writing that I'll do. And who knows? Mm. Who knows what will be next? Excellent. Paul, thank you so much for your time. It was such a pleasure to speak with you on all of these topics. I have one final question. Who would you like to platform? Mm. Well, I certainly would love to platform Carl Safina, okay. um, because I think that he is uh, he his he's was first known in the states for a book be call, uh, called um, "Song for the Blue Ocean," but he did successfully make the migration out of the sea, <laughs> much like our predecessors millions of years millions of years ago. Uh, but he wrote a great book called "Beyond Words: What Animals Think and Feel." Oh wow! And then another follow up to that called uh, "Becoming Wild," um, and he is uh, very much of the mind that um, we're giving short shrift to animals um, by kind of causing a duality between that there's us and them. Mm -hmm. But when really we're all part of the same evolutionary process. So platform him away. Amazing. I will track him down. Thank yeah. you so, so, so much. Really fun speaking to you as well, Rachel. If you want to learn more about Paul's work and find his books, I'll put links to his website over on planetcritical.com where you can choose a paid subscription to support this podcast. Thank you all for listening and for your support. See you next week.